truly at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 200 of Dogcast Radio. All 200 episodes, along with a multitude of other resources, can be found on our website, dogcastradio.com. Later on, we'll have the Dogcast Radio news. The new UK study has indicated that dogs may suffer anxiety to the point of becoming depressed if their owners are on their phone too much. But before that, November the 11th is Remembrance Day, a time when we stop and remember the sacrifice of those who gave their lives in the line of duty. Of course, we deeply appreciate the sacrifice. But those human soldiers relied on a variety of animals, notably dogs, to assist them. We have one interview in the show today, and that focuses on commemorating those animal lives. I'm talking to Robin Hutton. Hi, Robin. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And you are the author, amongst other things, of War Animals, the Unsung Heroes of World War II. You've done so much. You were named Patriotic Citizen of the Year by the Military Order of the Purple Heart for your work. And you've done sort of non-profit work. You've done a lot of things, haven't you? Well, I've been very blessed, Julie. You know, these animals have just touched my heart in so many ways, starting with the great Korean war horse named Sergeant Reckless. Mm -hmm. And um, she's actually the one that had set me on this wonderful journey, um, working with and learning all about these great animals, especially the ones that received the wonderful British award, the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, their Dickin Medal. Mm. And uh, so that's just, it's just been a delight. And, you know, these animals have taken me places that I never, ever would have guessed, you know, four or five years ago. So it's, it's just been remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed this is in my notes for later on, but we'll talk about it now <laughs> since it, it seems appropriate. Um, you're currently working to erect a memorial in Washington, D.C. to commemorate war animals as well, aren't you? Yes. And, and actually, it's the idea has just kind of taken off. Um, at first, I wanted to do like a like the one that's in London. Yours inspired um, inspired me that beautiful animals in war memorial uh, across from Hyde Park in yes. London. I yeah. love that monument. And so I thought, you know, we needed something like that. In America. And um, so I was thinking of the beautiful like sculpture garden and have a about a dozen or so animals. But then as I started thinking about it, the idea has kind of grown into instead of just a monument, an international war animals museum. And be a place where you can come and learn all about the all these different animals that have served in war, not just a particular dozen or so that would have been in the sculpture garden monument, which we hope to still have as part of our museum idea. But it would be a place for generations to come and learn about these fabulous animals that have served throughout history in different wars and and different animals, you know, from elephants and camels to a cat and birds and who who knows all. I'm still trying to get down to the bottom of all the ones that have served in some way, you know, in or military conflicts, but uh, it's 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 truly inspiring when you start to read, uh, as I'm sure you know, these these stories of these animals that gave their all and uh, you know served so valiantly. Yes, yeah, and as you say, I mean, we're going to concentrate on dogs today, but um, 
I, I mean, I think you covered them all. I, I didn't hear mules because I've looked obviously in the book and it's dogs, horses, mules, pigeons and, and a cat. Um, and it's, yeah. a, it's a wide variety of animals, isn't it, that you wouldn't even think would be useful in, in war. I know, you know, and um, in World War II, the Dickon Medal was awarded to 32 pigeons, mm-hmm. 18 dogs, three horses and a cat. And since then, um, uh, there have been many more dogs and Sergeant Reckless was added. Just in 2016, I received the Dickon Medal for her. And that's how I discovered all of these wonderful British animals that um, that were honored by the PDSA uh, for their incredible work. And uh, But you never know, you know, with these great animals that, um, you know, they, they're thrown into so many different capacities to help lend a hand. And it's, it's truly remarkable. Yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, saying that, what sort of jobs did did the dogs do? Well, they were trained for different ones. You know what's interesting about our war dog program, Julie, is and you um, in Great Britain, you had a war dog program starting in World War One um, uh, with a, a Colonel. I think it's Richardson who's who started the, the war dog program there. And it was an amazing school that he had developed. And actually, his manuals were ones that we we used during World War Two because we didn't have a war dog program. And when we were bombed with Pearl Harbor, the, a poodle breeder, this woman named Arlene Erlanger, a poodle breeder, said, we got to get our dogs into this war, into this effort. Mm -hmm. And she started Dogs for Defense. And um, it was an amazing organization that asked people to donate their personal pets. And I understand that that's what Great Britain did, too, that they had their own pets, um, that you that were donated to the cause because, you know, food was tight and everything else uh, over there. But for us, it was we didn't have any you know, idea of what dogs could do. And so she got together and, and she uh, talked the army into uh, trying out dogs for sentry duty. You know, they were guard dogs to um, guard our on the home front. They would guard our factories, our airports, our munitions plants. They also guarded our coastlines. They would, uh, for the Coast Guard, they, the dogs would work with horses and um, guard our, you know, thousands of miles of coastline because we were afraid of another attack back then. Mm-hmm. Um, then they were also trained as uh, to when they served overseas, they were served um, as silent scout dogs, which meant that they would lead the patrols and into the jungles and try to help identify the enemy in there. They were served they served as uh, messenger dogs where they would have messages attached to these capsules on the back of their neck. And they would have two handlers, and one would be on the the war front with the dog. And then at a certain point, he'd say, you know, report to Paul. And the dog would take off and find his way back through the jungle. Uh, It was just amazing. Uh, There were two dogs in the book. Um, There was uh, Bing, who was a British dog. He was a para-dog. He jumped out in parachutes Mm -hmm. uh, with with his uh, patrols and stuff and would be a sentry dog then for them to, you know, serve at night to, uh, you know, make sure that uh, the camp wasn't infiltrated or also served as a messenger dog. And they also served as um, casualty dogs. 
um, where if, uh, you know, certain dogs would go out looking for wounded uh, soldiers, you know, ones that might be unconscious or had crawled into a hole or something, and they would go out um, to do that. We had tried to use mine detection dogs, and um, there was a better effort, I think, with uh, Great Britain's um, um, uh, mine detection dogs than ours. Uh, they, they didn't have really at that time the correct um, uh, thing that they would ha- be smelling. You know, today's, you know, today's ward dog program, these dogs are amazingly well-trained. You know, they finally, you know, with the IEDs and everything else, um, today's war dog program is phenomenal. But back then, it really didn't uh, take off. But there is a beautiful story of little Ricky that won the PDSA Dickin Medal. And in the Netherlands, he was a, a mine um, detection dog. And um, he was smelling, uh, sniffing in an area. Uh, and um, sadly, someone near him stepped on a, a landmine and uh, was killed. But Ricky was wounded and everything. Mm. But whenever he, he recovered, and he still that day was able to go and, and smell out um, landmines that um, were in the area. And, you know, it's really amazing that even today, his picture, uh, his family, he was owned by a family. His family has a dog food company in South Africa, and his picture is on the cover of their products. Oh. And it's so wonderful to see. He was a cute little terrier looking, you know, tousle haired dog, you know, just a, an adorable dog, looked like Benji. But uh, it's amazing what these dogs will do. It yes. really is. You can train them to do. They're so smart, yeah. really smart. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's that. I find that really, really touching, and it's a measure of how devoted I think, how, how frightened people were about the war, but how devoted they were to sort of we, we've got to win this, we've got to stop the. Yes. Um, that you, I mean, there's that saying, isn't there? No, no greater. You know, you can't do anything more than lay down your life. But to lay down your right. dog for your country, that's that's asking a lot as well, isn't it? It, indeed, you know, I, they were better patriots than I would be. I mean, you touch my Misty, it's we're jumping from World War Two to World War Three real quick. <laughs> you know? Hands off my pups. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't do it. And I don't know any of my friends that, you know, when I talk to people about this, it's like, uh, there's no way I could, uh, I, I could do that, you know, but it, it was such a patriotic call. And uh, over there, it served a real, in England, it served a real need to have these dogs because the a lot of the people were, you know, bombed out of their houses, you know, during the Blitz. And mm. so, you know, they didn't have the, the money or um, the wherewithal to feed the dogs because food was um, in short supply. And so these dogs really aided to the effort and um, uh, helped the families get through. And then they were returned to the families after the war if they survived. So it was really uh, a wonderful program in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Just incredible. Well, obviously it was a different time, but it was a very different time. Um, So, so in America, did dogs, did dogs, if you had a dog did, and it was wanted, did you have to let it go? What was, what was the deal? No, it was, it was uh, purely by um, whether you wanted to donate it or not. And, you know, when they first made the plea for dogs, over 40,000 dogs were 
donated. Wow. Now, not all of them made the cut, the first cut, because they were either too old or the wrong breed or maybe didn't have the right temperament. But 20,000 dogs ultimately made the cut enough to go through initial training. And 10,425 dogs actually went into some kind of service just for our Coast Guard and our Army. And then there was uh, another uh, 1,100 um, just under 1,100 that also were trained by our Marine Corps. And they also served mostly in the Pacific. A lot of these dogs served in the Pacific uh, during World War II. And uh, it uh, it was really, really stunning. But it was really cute. I guess one letter, there's there's a story in the book, which this, this you know, I tried to keep the book. It's a very serious topic of yes, war, but yeah. I tried to make it as light as I could, because, uh, you know, I think with a spoonful of sugar, you can, you know, learn a lot more. Absolutely. Enjoy um, you know, yeah. the stories and, and everything. But there is this fun story about this woman who, <laughs> I guess she got the letter that, you know, about asking her to donate her dog to the cause. And she says, you've got my husband, you've got my son, you've got my uncle, you've got my brother-in-law, you've got, and she lists all these things. <laughs> no. You can take, you know, my dog's license number off your list. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I've given enough, I think, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, don't blame her. Don't blame her. It was true. But, you know, even at that time, they if your dog did not um, make the cut or if it was not the right breed, they had a war dog fund that was set up. Yeah. And any animal that you had, I mean, you could even register your turtle if you wanted to or your goldfish. And like for a dollar, they would be a private, you know, for five dollars, they would be maybe a, you know, a sergeant. And if you donated a hundred dollars, your your pet could be a general or an admiral or whatever you'd like in, in whichever <laughs> branch of the military. And it was a wonderful way of raising money. They raised a lot of money for the war dog. Uh, program uh, at that time yeah. just by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's an incredible piece of history. Yes. Yeah, just incredible. I'm just, I was just thinking, as you said that, you know, in today's age with, you know, social media, um, could we raise money like that again for forces, uh, for the forces, you know, with Remembrance Day is coming up? Right. Um, sell them again and you can put your you know your dog on instagram oh he's a major general you know? right exactly exactly no i think you know the, these gofundmes and these other you know um, different kinds of crowdfunding i think that kind of i think they would have made a lot of money if they would have had that available back in world yes. war <laughs> you know, seriously yeah, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so let, let's. Um, you've mentioned you know some of the dogs individually already, but let's get to to grips with some of the the other um, incredible and, and really moving stories. So, so tell me about Judy, who was an English pointer. Oh, yes. Oh, Julie, I think Judy is the heart of the book. Um, I uh, I cried for three days when I finished writing her story, her oh, chapter. Yeah. I. Her her story was so poignant. I I I had to give her a chapter because she was the the first and I believe the only prisoner of official prisoner of war dog. She um, was this. She was a mascot on a, a royal ship called um, the Nat, and then at, she transferred over to the Grasshopper during the war. And she was just this beloved pup. And um, 
She was on a ship in uh, Singapore. They had to flee Singapore when it was uh, taken over by the Japanese. And they were trying to find safety in a chain of islands. And the, the ship was attacked by planes. And thankfully, they were able to find a str- and get stranded on a small deserted island that didn't have any water or food or inhabitants of any kind. And so it was a very desperate time. And they had some supplies that were on the ship, but those ran out quickly. And, you know, people had, were killed on this, this attack and stuff. Well, Judy was able to find a live spring um, for them. And so she found a water supply for them and wow. just... By her own um, determinedness, you know, she she found this, and it was quite remarkable that she was able to do it at the water's edge. She found a live um, stream, and um, it uh, really saved uh, saved the people, you know, who were you know dehydrated and sick and everything. Well, they were trying to get back home or back to safety, and they had to uh, cross over to get to the far side of Sumatra, which was a very long trek that they had to make. And they had to do it um, on foot, and they had to go through the jungle uh, to try to make this ship home. And um, it was over 100 miles, 150 miles, I think. And she led the way through the jungles, trying to protect them from, you know, beasts and uh, trying to show them show them the way she would she would protect her her men as as she was leading them across. And sadly, when they got to their destination, um, they were a week late and they had missed the final ship and the town had been taken over by the Japanese. And so everybody was captured and um taken to a prisoner of war camp, including Judy. They smuggled her in. And she was, but she became this light force for the men in the camp. And she, she would, uh, she found her person in Frank Williams, who came a little bit um, later. And uh, he ultimately took care of her. He shared his food with her. And when, and when he did that, because they had no food really Mm -hmm. in camp, just awful there what they're eating and stuff and um but he he shared his food with her and so she trusted him and they, they became inseparable and um the mantra in these camps these these japanese prison camps were horrific and but the men were able to hold on as best they could by saying if judy can make it so can i mm-hmm. and uh, it was just so brutal and at one point, Frank was afraid of um, of them killing and and basically eating Judy because that's the you know food was short and they did eat dogs over there and so uh, Judy had a litter of puppies hmm. and one night Frank took one of the puppies to the um, camp commander. And um, who actually was a dog lover. He had been drinking a little bit. And Frank had the puppy there up on the desk. And the the guy was playing with it and enjoying the little puppy. And Frank said, I will give you this puppy if you will help protect Judy and make her a prisoner of war. And so the commandant thought about it for a bit. And he came up with a way that he could do it without causing too much attention. And he just uh, numbered her, uh, Frank's number was 81, and Judy's number was 81A. Uh And that's her prisoner of war number. And uh, he wrote out a letter that Frank kept with him and would show people that she was an official prisoner of war. So she would get 
some food allotments, but not really anything. Um, But what she did at night is she would go out into the jungles and bring back snakes or rats or birds or whatever she could find for the men to eat. And so that was a way that they were able to supplement their income, uh, their, their, excuse me, their food. And, uh, And then um, when she, it, some of these guards were so brutal mm. that there would be times where, you know, Frank got so good with hand signals or whistles with her. And she was such a smart dog that she could pick up things so quickly that if things were bad in camp, she would go out and just kind of lay out on the edges and just keep a, keep a lookout for Frank to come and give, either give a hand signal that it was okay for her to come back in or a whistle. And so he had different whistles for her. And so their relationship was just one of uh, pure love and survival. And um, Frank says, you know, he credits her really for saving her li- his life every day yeah, yeah. Of, of her her just her devotion and love and uh, it's it's just amazing what she went through as well as what the men went through in in these camps but she survived the war and um and came home to a hero's welcome and uh, received the uh, dickon medal and so it's 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 just a beautiful beautiful story yes yeah and you can just imagine how much she must have meant to to frank and all the men because you know a dog around you just lifts your spirits and makes you feel better and it must have been just more important than you than we can imagine to those those men indeed and there was like one time it's a a kind of a cute story in the book that the men had stole a a bag of rice you know and Mm. um guards came in looking for it in in the um in their hut and they were just about to find it and judy comes running in with a skull (laughs) (laughs) so their 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 voices went up about four octaves you know they're shrieking (laughs) that skull this dog is just running around with the skull in its mouth and everything and it took you know attention away from what they were doing and they kind of ran out of the hut and judy ran out of the hut and you know they were able to hide rehide then the rice you know and so they didn't get caught but you know she protected them that way yeah. and um bark at them uh, bark at the guards if they were attacking one of the prisoners and and things like that she was just very very protective but uh she she was and she was such a beautiful dog. I have some great pictures in the book of her and Frank, and um, it, you just see that this face, you know, and and you just it, she's just a beautiful dog. Yeah, yeah. Oh, beautiful, and obviously beautiful outside and in as well. Just cool. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Indeed. Um, and uh, and from from one sort of fairly big dog to another big dog. Tell me about Chips, the the German Shepherd mix. So Chips was really America's most decorated dog. He was actually our first, I would say, our first war hero because uh, he was owned by this family in Pleasantville, New York. Um, uh, There was John and little Johnny, who was four, and his sister Nancy and Gail. and, And Chips loved to protect the girls, and so he would you know, chase after the postman or the garbage men. And so they were kind of afraid of them. So when the call came out uh, that, you know, dogs for defense needed dogs, they thought chips would just really be able to, you know, handle the enemy just great. You know, <laughs> so he, was, he was volunteered and he went to training uh, for the army. 
And he was actually on the very first landing that Americans made uh, called Operation Torch in November of 1942 in North Africa. And he made the landing um, okay. And, you know, you never know how animals, you know, it's one thing to go through training. It's another thing to be thrown into the mix of all the chaos and confusion and the bombs and everything. And uh, a couple of the dogs that were with Chips uh, suffered from PTSD and they were just too afraid to, um, you know, make the landing. But Chips made the landing and and uh, they were able to advance, and he served as a sentry dog while he was there. But um, there's not much written about that particular landing other than that he survived it. And then uh, about two months later, in Casablanca, uh, President Roosevelt and Sir Winston Churchill were um, having a that's called the Casablanca Conference. And it was a 10-day conference from January 14th to the 24th, where all the Allied leaders got together. Um, you had uh, General de Gaulle was there and uh, other Allied uh, leaders as well. And they came up with the unconditional surrender was the only thing that they would accept from the uh, Germans and the Japanese uh, to end the war. They wouldn't accept, they wouldn't make any other kind of bargains. It was going to be unconditional surrender. And so Chips, for 10 days, was a sentry dog that guarded um, President Roosevelt and Sir Winston. And he both of them. He met both of them. So that was quite uh, quite a delight. But Chips's day with destiny came in July of that year, on July 10th, 1943, with um, uh, the invasion of Sicily. And he was uh, part of General Patton's 7th Army. And um, there were three groups that were landing on the uh, on Sicily in different areas of the country. And um, Chips made the landing at 4 in the morning. And just, in, uh, just as they were hitting the beach, suddenly, you know, they were being attacked by a machine gun nest up in the, up in the woods um, near the edge of the beach. And um, so the men, of course, hit the ground trying to, trying to dig foxholes to protect themselves. Well, Chips breaks free of his handler. And in the midst of all that confusion and bombs and bullets and hailing all around, he charges this machine gun nest and jumps inside. And the men hear shots going off, a couple of shots going off. And, of course, they feared the worst. But suddenly Chips comes out of the hut dragging the machine gun gunner by the throat. And then behind him are three other Italian soldiers with their hands in the air uh, surrendering because they're afraid this mad beast is going to kill them all, you know. (laughs) And so they were able to um, advance the farthest that day because um, uh, Chips had silenced this machine gun. And later night. Well, he also got injured. Um, he was shot. He had some powder burns and a crease on his back and nothing was you know, too bad, but um, he did get injured. But later that night, he was still able to aid in uh, hearing or smelling uh, 10 Italian soldiers that were trying to break into the camp. And um, they were all taken prisoners of war. And so because of this amazing, amazing effort by this little dog, he was actually awarded the uh, our number three. We have um, several, you know, military orders. Our very first one is um, the Medal of Honor. The second one is the Distinguished Silver 
excuse me, the Distinguished Service Cross. Mm. And the third one is the Silver Star. Well, Chips in his um, in his um, orders, he was cited for the Distinguished Service Cross, the number two award. But he was indeed awarded and presented with the Silver Star. He's the only dog in history to have received that kind of military medal. Yeah. And it was just an amazing, uh, amazing thing that he did. And, uh, of course, the news back home of this great war dog receiving this, he was also put up to receive a Purple Heart um, at the same time. But sadly, what happened was hmm. the other people that were part of the Military Order of the Purple Heart and uh, uh, Military Order of the World Wars, they they didn't feel it was appropriate for a dog to receive that kind of a medal. And yeah. so Chips's medals were taken away. They were revoked. But still, he stands as the you know uh, greatest dog to have received these medals. So he went on to serve out the rest of the, the war. He was in different battles in Italy and uh, Salerno. And he actually met our General Dwight Eisenhower, who, when he bent down to pet Chips and congratulate him, Chips nipped him in the hand. <laughs> you know, and it was quite embarrassing. But that's what he was trying to do. Nobody yes. touch him, you know, except for his, his owner. And uh he did um, make it back home um, after the war. He went through detraining and, and made it back home. And it was so sweet because at the train station when he arrived home, little Johnny Wren, who was now four years old, was there to meet his war dog. And there's some cute stories that um, Johnny Wren, now all grown up, when I was able to interview him, he has some wonderful stories in the book about his war dog coming home, which was very, very precious. But one of the nicest events I had been to in a long time happened earlier this year in January, uh, uh, on January 15th. And um, I went, I had nominated Chips for the Dickon Medal. Mm -hmm. And um, he was awarded it. And so uh, we went over to England and we were in, it was the 75th anniversary of the uh, Churchill, uh, um, Roosevelt Churchill Casablanca Conference, 75th anniversary. We were in the Churchill War Rooms in, in London. Randolph Churchill, um, Sir Winston's great grandson, was there to uh, be present with the presentation. And little four year old Johnny Wren was now all grown up and to be 78 year old John Wren was there to receive the Dickon Medal for his war dog. And it was such a great day, Julie. Oh, we had, it was, I was just over the moon. I really was over the moon to be a part of this. And Chips turned out to be the 70th recipient of the Dickon Medal and the um, 20th World War II dog to be um, presented it posthumously. And, there's some uh, great pictures in the book with the war dog that uh, that stood in for chips to receive it. But it was just uh, just a great day. Yeah. <laughs> a great day, oh. you know. But yeah. what, I mean, what a fantastic dog. I mean, I he, he deserves every medal going because I mean, to, to, to I mean, you painted such a vivid picture of, of the, you know, the machine gun um, yeah. operators. But I mean that's that's genuinely frightening and genuinely you know yeah you know, he could have died like that and just 
yeah. to to yeah. overcome and frighten. Yeah. You know, I mean, the men involved would have been fairly hardened. So, so yeah. to to deal with them and to frighten them enough to that point. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing dog! But then, and there's a you know, you raise a really really important question then because for him to have been able to perform at that level but then to come back and live the life of a you know a, a pet dog again an ordinary right. dog if you like yes. that takes a lot of rehabilitation and re yeah. relearning doesn't it yeah no it really did and uh i don't want to give too much away uh, from the book because you got to read it but there is a cute story of when little Johnny Wren was walking down the street in his little uniform with his war dog by his side and he's got his little holster with his gun and he's marching down the street and and saluting to people, you know, as <laughs> they go by and stuff. And suddenly this neighbor kid comes running at them both with a cap gun. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine old chips. I said, oh, my God, John, what happened, you know? And he said, well, it was like a growl and a snap. And he said he just got that gun out of that kid's hand and the kid went crying into the house. (laughs) (laughs) What did he expect? He deserved it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God, bless Chips' heart. He was protective master, you know? Yes. um, thankfully he didn't do, you know, anything worse, but no. he, have, you know, I mean, it's, but he, he did become, he was this wonderful pet, uh, that, um, you know, the, the family just adored. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, all dogs are wonderful, but German shepherds are just, Oh, they are, you know, just wonderful. And, and that sort of a well-bred, well-brought-up German shepherd will sense the weakest sort of of the family and just protect them forever, won't they? They're just a wonderful, wonderful breed. Yeah, I had one. Uh, We found one roaming the streets here in the valley that I live in and just this beautiful black German shepherd, Belgian shepherd, you know, whichever breed, it's hard to know. But he he was just, and they look so fierce, you know, they really look so fierce. But Boy, oh boy, they they are just fabulous dogs, just fabulous dogs. And those they're the dogs of choice, basically, for our marine uh, uh, working dog um, program now. They use the German Shepherds, the Belgian Malinois. Um, they'll use Labradors as well. But those those kind of German Shepherd breed um, is really the the most common dog that's that's used today. And boy, aren't they are something else? Yes, yeah, incredible. And I bet actually they relish that life. You know, it's not sort of a, a hardship for them, is it? That's what they they want. They want to have a job. They want to have a purpose. They yeah, want to be doing. Job. You know. Yeah. We're doing a monument. Uh, the gal that uh, I I made, uh, I commissioned three monuments for Sar- national monuments for Sergeant Reckless, the Korean War Horse Sergeant Reckless. And the artist who did this monument, it's a stunning monument, absolutely stunning. And um, so she, there was a, a, a war dog that received the Dickin Medal just before um, Reckless received hers in 2016, and this was a Marine Corps dog named Luca. And Luca was, uh, she went on 400 patrols uh, before she stepped on an IED, and it it blew off her paw. She survived, and she Mm -hmm. lost her leg, but she was just this amazing dog. No handler was ever injured when she was on patrol. 
Um, she, she was so good. I mean, think of 400 patrols, my gosh, you know, it's just, so we're doing a monument for her and, uh, you know, it's, and she, she won the, uh, she had great response when she went over to London to receive her Dickin medal. And, uh, um, so we're, you know, it'll be, it'll be a delight to honor her with her own, monument that we'll place here at Camp Pendleton, where she uh, came after she was injured and she recovered, and with her handler. And then um, I want to do a War Animals Museum, and she will be part of that as well. So it'll be really, really cool. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. So, Lovely. But they're amazing. She's just this gorgeous German shepherd that was just, oh, boy, what a face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they were, obviously, there, there was a huge risk to them and, you know, a, a, of injury and death and that. But um, they were well looked after. Tell me about the, the doggy boots. They, uh, so they sort of, so in some situations, they had doggy boots, didn't they? Yeah, they, uh, with the Coast Guard, when because of the shells and stuff on the um, the beaches, you know, when the dogs would go on patrol, their pads were not prepared for that kind of, um, uh, you know, grating uh, on the beach and stuff. And so they they had little leather booties personally made for them that they would wear um, to do patrols. And it really did save their feet because they would be on patrol for hours at a time, you know, and... Uh, it was amazing what um, you know what they what they did. There's a real cute little picture of Poncho in there getting his booties put on. Yes, him. yeah. Do you, do you think like in the military, even the dogs had to shine their you know, clean and shine their <laughs> <laughs> put them at the end of the bed. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Oh, the other oh. thing that sort of bring bring us home that I mean these dogs, yes, they're they're incredible, but. They, they're still, you know, a dog is always a dog. A dog is not a robot. And there was right. uh, the female dogs had to be neutered, didn't they? Yes, <laughs> yes. And I think that that really was because of chips. And it got to a point where they wouldn't accept any female dogs unless they were neutered because chips uh, kind of had his way with Mina on a on the ship. And uh, she, she gave uh, birth to... Uh, several puppies and two of them actually went on to serve with different branches of the military but after that happened it was it was an order that uh, any female dogs um, serving had to be neutered. yes <laughs> spayed uh, they had to be spayed yes, so yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, I, I can imagine because I remember taking my Labrador um, quite a few years ago now I guess about maybe 10 years ago thinking about it and we we were we were trying to get to crufts and we did but not through the show route but we did um right. and but we did some we tried some showing so i was going to ring craft classes and um, there was uh, he, he'd been a couple of times he wasn't great but you know we were getting there and he'd, he'd try his best and we went to a couple of lessons and then we went to the third one and he was hopeless and there was a um there was a rottweiler <laughs> female rottweiler who was on heat and you know, he, oh. his brain just wasn't <laughs> registering. And he just was like, I just want to go and stand over there and sniff this right. dog, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, my God. It was her secret weapon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, people people actually commented and went, what's wrong with him this week? And I went, I'm really sorry, but he just wants to go to that rock <laughs> And yet, he was, he was, <laughs> yeah, he was a funny dog, though, because the rock 
sort of it obviously wasn't quite the right time and she was sort of like get off me and right. and so and so buddy was like i just want to sniff whereas if a female dog if it was at the right time any dogs that who actually swing their rump at him he'd be like get off go on leave me alone <laughs> It was funny like that. Oh, that is so funny. Oh my god. Yeah, but I just you know I can imagine. Yeah, that the, the brings out if you like the human side of of the, yeah, the dogs there. Of you know. Yeah, you know, person. It's the things you learn in the heat of battle. You know. Oops. Yeah, we got to spay this one. You know. <laughs> yes. <gonna> work. <laughs> oh dear. Um, and there was there's another quote that you put in that again brings home how how valued they were. Um, the quote from Lieutenant uh, Colonel Alan Shapley. Um, uh-huh. And he said, I, uh, I want you men to remember that the dogs are the least expendable of all. Yeah. Wasn't that great? Yes. Yeah. He was at a second Marine uh, uh, Raider regiment and uh, he was the commanding officer on the um, when they landed in uh, Bougainville with the Marine Corps. And uh, it was clear that the dogs, the dogs were especially when they they got to that jungle of an island you know the the jungle was so thick and their walkie-talkies would not work and they you know couldn't see five feet in front of them basically cutting through the jungle so they absolutely depended on the silent scout dogs to lead the patrols and then the messenger dogs to carry back information uh to uh you know back to the command post and uh, it's really stunning when you see what these uh, dogs had to go through uh, on Bougainville. And uh, uh, in the book, I focus on the first Marine war dog platoon, but there were actually seven war dog platoons that served with the Marine Corps um, throughout the Pacific and, and Europe. But um, uh, I, I just focused on the first because I, 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 there's so many great dog stories. You know, you had to kind of pick and choose. But um, it was wonderful to see how how much they were appreciated and uh, respected and, uh, you know, uh, just protected because of, of what they uh, were going through. You know, the, the men would build a foxhole for their dog before they'd build one for themselves at times, you know, because yeah. they had to, they wanted to make sure that he was protected at all times. And so it, um, it really is uh, something great to see. Yeah. Yeah. You also have to think of like the handlers, because this was all new to them, you know, you had, um, when this war dog program started, um, I think his name was Garl, G-A-R-L-E. He, he came over, he was running your war dog school there mm. and he came over to America and helped train our war dogs for the first, uh, several months. He went to every one of the recruit depots where the dogs were and aided and because the handlers had to be trained too they had absolutely no idea what they were supposed to be doing with with the dogs so it was quite an adventurous um uh time you know mm-hmm. uh, for the program and for and for it to work as beautifully as it did you know it had to you know uh, it was it's really a credit to what they learned i think from your war dog program uh, that had been in effect um, and for the first world war, and then again when it picked up in the second. Yeah, uh, but it's uh, it's it's truly remarkable. Yes, yeah. I mean, this is this is in a way a, a really difficult question. But how much do you think the the animals will will widen it? Not just the dogs. I mean, it will you know that all the animals who were involved in the war. How much do you think they did change you know the course of the war and and 
you know, sort of shorten it or whatever they did. How much do you think they did change it? I think they were instrumental. I really do. When you think of the number of lives that they were able to save, um, especially like with the pigeons, let's just say, you know, they at times were the only line of communication. Mm-hmm. And um, there was one pigeon in particular for America. And actually, this bird was the only animal that received the Dickin Medal during World War II. Mm-hmm. And that was an American bird named G.I. Joe. And G.I. Joe was hatched in North Africa, and and he served with um, a British unit. He served with the the British 56th London Infantry Division. And they were taking, they were trying to break the German line in a town in Italy called Colvivecchia. And uh, the Germans held steady in this town, and the British um, unit was trying to take the town back. And... um, a bombing mission had been set for 11:10 that morning. Well, the Germans gave up the town and the British were able to come in at a, like around 10:30 or so. But they had no way to call off the bombing mission because they had no their lines of communication were cut and so they had absolutely no way to do this. And so all they had was this little pigeon named G.I. Joe. And G.I. Joe they strapped a message on his leg in his capsule. G.I. Joe flew 20 miles in 20 minutes and stopped the planes on the tarmac from taking off. They were ready to go. They were revving up. And by doing that, he had saved the lives of at least 100 British soldiers. And so he received the Dickin Medal for his efforts with that. But, you know, there's there's no way really to account for the number of lives these animals saved. um, Just by, you know, the fact of... um, you know, getting the information back and letting them, you know, people know, or the messenger dogs. uh, There was one messenger dog on Bougainville named Jack that this unit had been um, uh, stuck. They were, they were trapped and they were being shelled and shot at and stuff. And Jack um, had a, was shot. uh, He had a, a, a bullet go through his back but it was an in and out. It was a straight through. And uh, he was bleeding badly. And his handler was shot in the leg and he was in pain. And the commanding officer came over to um, uh, Gordon Wortman and said, son, your, your dog is the only chance we have to get a message back. Do you think he can do it? You know, and Gordon said, well, sir, he's got a lot of guts. Let's see. So they strapped this message onto Jack and he summed up every strength that he could to go back and report back to command, being shot at and everything else. And he did make it through with his message. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was able to save that platoon because then reinforcements were able to come in, stretchers were able to come in to take care of the wounded. And, you know, he really saved the day. Yes. And um, it's, ju- it's just, um, so there's really, when you think about all of this, um, you know, what these animals did, how instrumental they were in uh, so many instances that they were involved in. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's just really amazing to, uh, to read their stories and you really appreciate all that they did. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's a, a lovely book. And as you say, it's, it's a serious subject, but you do, you know, there's lovely stories in there. You know, it, it is, it's a, and it's a, it's an, an easy read. Well, you know, it's, it's a serious read, but it's a, it's an easy right. read in that it reads nicely. Well, um, yeah. 
And I think with the pictures, too, we have over 150 pictures in the book. I tried to get one of every animal that I that is mentioned in the book. If there was a picture available, you know, we went over my roommate from college, Karen Storms, and I went over to the uh, PDSA and uh, they opened up their archives to uh, to us. And I got every piece of paper I could on the PDSA's um, animal heroes, you know, that they had on all these great award medal winners. And um, they were just so kind. And, um, you know, and I got the pictures that they had. And there's just some beautiful pictures in the book uh, that uh, I'm very, very proud about. Yeah. And there'll there'll be more. I've started a website at waranimals.com. And, um, you know, there'll be a lot more pictures uh, and stuff because I couldn't get all I have hundreds and hundreds of pictures. And so I'll be adding more and more pictures as we go along. Yeah, Uh, because you just a picture, you know, says a thousand words Mm. and you just fall in love with these animals. You just want to see them more. So, (laughs) yes. Yeah, we'll we'll put that link on on the the show notes. Yeah, smashing. And we've we've talked a lot um, about about this. And but obviously we haven't covered you know, maybe a tenth of what's in the book. Um, but yeah. is, is there anything else that you'd like to say that we haven't had time to say? Well, I think, you know, I know people are just going to really, really enjoy learning all of these wonderful heroes, especially over in, um, you know, across the pond to where you guys are, because so many of these heroes were um, British uh, award winners from the Dickon Medal. And uh, it is just so delightful. And as I said earlier, I'm very excited about us doing an International War Animals Museum in Washington, D.C. area to keep these stories alive for generations to come. And it's just uh, everybody I talk to about it just falls out of bed for it because there's nothing like it in the world. You know, there are museums that have different pieces of things like I know. The Imperial War Museum in Duxford has Judy's Dick and Metal and Collar. And I think Bing is even out there with his, uh, he was a paradog that um, I think his Dick and Metal is, is out there as well. Um, but I'd love to have a place where all of these, you know, stories for everybody to just learn about and understand and bring their kids. It'll be very interactive and fun for kids and fun for families and and stuff. And again, on the website, um, I'll have information on the museum idea as well. But, um, you know, we just can't honor these heroes enough, in my opinion, because they gave their all. They had no voice and no choice, and they sacrificed just as heroically as their human handlers and compatriots. So it's it's just a delight to be able to hear the response to the book and also then um, the response of honouring them in bigger and better ways as well. Wasn't that incredible and humbling? Thanks to Robin Hutton. And we have the link to her site, waranimals.org, on our website, dogcastradio.com. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www dogcastradio.com The world would be a nicer place if everyone had the ability to love unconditionally as a dog. M.K. Clinton And now it's time for the Dogcast Radio News. The world's first commemorative pet plaque programme has launched in the UK to celebrate our amazing animals. The new scheme by House and Pet Sitting Business, Trusted House Sitters, will see green markers attached to houses up and down the country, which commemorate the achievements of our beloved companions. 
Each plaque gives a brief description of the animal's achievement and even features ears to set the new plaques apart from any others. Commemorative plaques, such as the English Heritage Blue Plaque Scheme, have honoured notable men and women for over 150 years by placing a marker on the homes they worked or lived in, but a scheme has never been solely dedicated to animals. Amongst the very first pets being honoured with a plaque are Walnut the Whippet, whose last walk won the hearts of many, and Flora, the life-saving dog doctor. We have the full details of these dogs on the Dogcast Radio blog, and to nominate your own pet to be one of the next in line to receive a plaque, please visit the Pet Plaques page. Jenny? Jenny? Sorry, I'm just catching up on my Instagram. Well, stop. Oh, because we're reading the Dogcast Radio news? No. Well, yes, but also because dogs may get depressed when their owners overuse smartphones, according to a new study. Oh, I saw this story. On your phone, by any chance? Maybe. Luckily, Mischief isn't in the room right now, so she doesn't know I was on my phone, because a new UK study has indicated that dogs may suffer anxiety to the point of becoming depressed if their owners are on their phone too much. Possible causes could be that the dogs are missing out on attention and eye contact, or they could be reading our body language, which could be angry or disapproving, depending on what we're reading on our phone, which the dog may think is in response to them. Perhaps they're feeling down at the revelations of another study that our dogs may not be as intelligent as we think. The University of Exeter reviewed more than 300 papers on animal brain power, comparing dogs with other domestic animals, social hunters and carnivores such as wolves, bears, lions and hyenas. Dogs were at least matched by several species in each of these groups when it came to cognitive ability. For example, dolphins and chimpanzees can recognise themselves in a mirror, while dogs can't. Goats, pigs, dolphins, seals and sea lions do at least as well as dogs at following human pointing. Pigs are equally able to identify humans by smell. Sheep, pigeons and chimpanzees can identify humans by their faces. Donkeys, raccoons and wolves are just as capable of solving physical puzzles. Stop, stop, stop. This isn't going to help cheer up any depressed dogs listening, is it? OK, here's a story about a dog who's definitely clever and using his powers for good. Freya, the Springer Spaniel, has been sniffing out great-crested newts for Wessex water. The newt is protected by law and there are a lot of them in the Wessex water region. Now, to train a dog to detect anything, you have to have some of the anything for it to sniff and practice finding. So four newts under licence from Natural England have been helping three-year-old Freya get accustomed to their scent. The small nocturnal amphibians have been placed in plastic pots which have been hidden in outdoor locations for Freya to track down. Louise Wilson from Conservation Canine Consultancy has helped train Freya and we actually feature Louise in episode 176 of Dogcast Radio in which she gives a fascinating insight into her training methods and the impressive range of wildlife that her dogs are helping to preserve and study. Dogs' sensitive noses can be used to sniff out all kinds of things. And in Bedminster, New Jersey, there's a dog whose clever nose keeps his owner safe from his life-threatening nut allergy. When the family lived in Missouri, all was well, and the dog spent his days in school with his boy. However, when the family moved to Bedminster, the new school banned the dog, and as a consequence, the family is suing the township school district, saying that without the service dog, the nuts could kill their son. Apparently, the poor boy has a severe life-threatening allergy to peanuts and tree nuts. His allergy once caused the boy to fall into a coma for five days, from which he was not expected to recover and live. We'd love to know what you think. Should the dog, who has been trained to sniff out nuts, be allowed into the school? Has the school violated state and federal laws protecting people with disabilities? 
do other students who might be allergic to the dog need to be protected? It's not just schools who have hit the headlines for not allowing assistance dogs to carry out their jobs. In Canada, a woman and her guide dog were refused entry into a cab. When Shelley Adams, who works for the Canadian International Institute for the Blind, was trying to get home from a business trip, it was annoying when her plane was two hours late. But it was even more annoying when, after waiting in a long line for a cab, the driver of the cab she tried to get into told her he had allergies and refused to drive her. Shelley argued, but in the end, she took the man's card and decided to pursue the matter once she was home. Apparently, allergies can be a legally allowed reason to refuse an assistance dog, but only if you have such severe allergies that a doctor has put a note on file to that effect. Otherwise, it's illegal. Shelley put in a complaint to the police and learned that complaints were made about two taxi drivers that weekend, but only one of them had a doctor's letter about his allergies. Apparently, the driver who refused to drive Shelley was not aware that he needed to get his allergies documented. I genuinely can't understand how this awful discrimination and misinformation exists in 2018. Mom, tell me something to make me feel better. Challenge accepted. Do you remember police dog Axel, who was stabbed four times while attending an arrest in Derbyshire, UK? Uh, yeah, I'm not feeling better yet. Keep listening. Axel is not only recovered; he's back at work, and the man who stabbed him has been sentenced to six years and seven months in prison. Okay, I'm feeling better. Good, and that's all from the two hundredth episode of the Dogcast Radio News. See you next time. When I look into the eyes of an animal, I do not see an animal. I see a living being. I see a friend. I feel a soul. A. D. Williams. I can't believe that thirteen years have flown by since our first podcast. I can remember sitting there at our dining table with an array of, to me, bewildering technology which Mr. Dogcast had set up. At that point in two thousand and five, very few people were aware of podcasting, and we were constantly using the phrase "internet radio" to explain what we were. Of course, it's not just the technology which has moved on. Our family has changed. Currently, Mischief Jenny's German Spitz Klein is the only dog in the house. Back in two thousand and five. Buddy was coming up to his second birthday, and Star didn't join us until July two thousand and six. Those thirteen years have also seen Jenny grow from a dog-loving child to a young woman who is now aiming to have a career working with dogs. I've been amazed and delighted over the years at the people who've made time to talk to me and share their funny, moving, inspirational, informative experiences with us. Without Buddy, we would never have thought of podcasting about dogs. It was my habit of falling into conversation with other dog owners while out walking Buddy, which inspired Mr. Dogcast, who knew that podcasting was about to take off, to suggest the whole mad enterprise. Thankfully, there wasn't a sensible adult in the house to say no, don't do that. So, thank you, Buddy, for Dogcast Radio. Thank you to everyone who's contributed and to everyone who's listened. That's it for our two hundredth episode, and until episode two hundred and one. Look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio. Available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T-Radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word. Dog Cast Radio. By email, you can contact me on Julie at Dog Cast 
radio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What do you get when you cross a dog and a calculator? A friend you can count on.